Looking at the final portion of Luke chapter 12 as we continue studying through and preaching through the book of Luke. And today's text will begin with verses 49 through and end through the end of the chapter, verse 59. For those of you who were here last week, and as we considered the text just prior to this one, we considered the emphasis that Jesus gives in that text of of his return, the certainty of that of his return, that the reality of Jesus return is not a myth of men. It's the message of the Lord Jesus Christ himself It's the message of the angelic witness as Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one. It's the clear message of those who write under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in the New Testament. Paul, throughout his writings, make references, makes reference to Christ's return. Peter references Christ's return. John references Christ's return. Even the words of the Lord Jesus himself, as recorded in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, I will return. And so there is the clear message of Jesus' return that permeates all through the Scripture. We talked about last week the certainty of that return, but also what takes place when He returns. There is the promise of blessing upon those who have prepared, those who are ready for His return. But there's also the threat and the reality of impending judgment upon those who are not prepared, those who are not ready. And so that's what leads into our text here. And we considered last week, even backing up further into chapter 12, if you'll bear with me here, how living with an expectation, living in anticipation of Christ's return is part of what Jesus calls his followers to when he calls them in verse 30 of chapter 12 to seek the kingdom. I'm verse 31, I'm sorry, but to seek for his kingdom. Let that be the, the priority. Let that be the ambition and the goal of your life. And these other things that we are so prone to be concerned for. Food, housing, clothing. Those things which we tend to be anxious about, to be worried about. Those, he assures, will be added to you. So, living in anticipation of Christ's return. It's part of seeking his kingdom. It's also part of what he references back even further in chapter 12, verse 21, when he speaks of laying up treasures or being rich toward God rather than laying up treasures on earth. So last week, it was as though Jesus took the setting in which he was involved and he and he did a fast forward to his return. And this week. We're coming back. We're coming back to the, the present day and his, his present day. So apparently, there's something in the mind of Jesus that connects his second coming with his first coming. Otherwise, you have to believe that he's just wandering about in his thoughts and his words somewhat aimlessly as he gives his teaching here throughout Luke chapter 12. I happen to use a red letter edition of the scriptures and most of chapter 12 in that is red letters. It's mostly the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the time that I think that we'll consider this this morning is this, that with his return... In mind, And it's certainly something that the people of God are to keep before them. 
to live in anticipation and expectation of Christ's return, to keep that thought ever in our minds before us, how should we understand, how should we view His first coming? How is it to be rightfully understood? And in fact, if we do not rightfully understand His first coming, there is no way that we are made ready for His second coming. That's the tie-in, I think, that, that we look at this text here today is rightly understanding how we are to interpret, how we are to view Christ in His first coming. So as Jesus thrust us last week, thrust His disciples last week into preparing for His return, He brings us back here. Now this is how you need to consider the present day, their present day, and likewise application for us as the people of God. So we'll begin reading here in Luke chapter 12, Beginning in verse 49. I've come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the multitudes, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way, there make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the constable and the constable throw you into prison. I say to you, you shall not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What was the significance and the purpose of Jesus in his first coming? What was the significance and his purpose in Jesus' first coming? Now, you ask that question both inside and outside the context of the church, the context of Christians. You get some very diverse answers. We would expect such diversity outside the church, outside of those within, of the Christian community, that they would give a different answer because obviously those who are not in Christ do not understand, do not grasp what Jesus intended for them to grasp in his first coming. But even within the Christian circles, within many churches, you could ask many believers or those who profess Christ, those who would say, I am a Christian, you could ask them, what was the significance What was the purpose of Jesus' first coming? Even among them, we would be exposed to a great diversity of answers. 
Biblically, I think it's safe to say that we must regard the the first coming of Jesus as the most crucial event that has taken place in human history. It's the most crucial event that has taken place in human history. And if that's the case, if it is that significant, and if it is that crucial an event, I think it's important that we make every effort possible to understand it. That we make every effort possible to get it. Now, I also understand that there are multitudes who would disagree with that statement. That Jesus' first coming was the most crucial event that's taken place in human history. But I am think, but I'm speaking to you biblically. I'm speaking to you theologically. And I'm speaking to you as a Christian, as a believer in Christ. It is clearly the central event of the Scriptures. From the Old Testament as it anticipated it. From the New Testament with the record of it and the reverencing back to it through the epistles. The most crucial event that has taken place, biblically speaking, is Christ's first coming. Up to this point. Now, there are some other events, events that will parallel in significance. And certainly Christ's return will parallel that. But of all the, the events that have taken place in human history, this is the most crucial. So... If again, if it was so significant, we must avoid what I see here in our text here this morning, the potential hazards, the potential dangers that are there of misunderstanding Christ's first coming. And there are vast multitudes who misunderstand Christ's first coming. Those who are outside Christ misunderstand Christ's first coming. There are many in church circles who misunderstand Christ's first coming. Coming, And so we hope to bring to light this morning at least some of the potential hazards. If you miss what Christ intends for you to see in his first coming, then it's at great peril even into your own soul. First of all, the first potential hazard that we see from our text here is misreading the incarnation. Misreading the incarnation, verses 49 through 53. Note here that Jesus is initially addressing his disciples. Most likely, as you look back in this chapter, verse 41, there's a break in in Jesus' speech here that we considered last week, where Peter speaks, perhaps interrupting, but he says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us? Or to everyone else as well. And so it seems that this later context, although there were multitudes there hearing, that it was answering Peter as a spokesman for the disciples. And so as we consider the first part of our text here, verses 49 and following, he is still replying to Peter. Peter's question there. And note here what I think is the centerpiece of these first, these first few verses is in verse 51. I think it's a centerpiece, number one, because it's the most clear. And number two, I think everything on both sides addresses this. Verse 51 says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Now, why did Jesus ask that question? Speaking to his disciples, speaking to those who have been with him, speaking to those who have known his ministry, those who have seen him in action, those who have seen what he is capable of doing. And the question that he asked to his disciples, do you suppose that I've come to bring peace upon the earth? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. The answer should be 
No. However, the answer likely would be from his disciples and many of those hearing would be, well, yes. We do suppose that you have come to grant peace on the earth. Isn't that what you've been doing? Isn't that what you are supposed to do? I mean, after all, we have seen the things that Jesus can do. We have seen Jesus bringing peace to those who are troubled in their hearts, bringing peace to those who have lost loved ones by bringing their loved ones back to life. You've brought peace. We've seen you even speak to the seas and the winds and say, Peace, be still, and there's peace. Yes. We suppose that you have come to bring peace upon the earth. And after all, is that not one of the revealed names of the Messiah in the Old Testament? Prince of Peace. So, likely, his answer, their answer, would have been the same as what we would have said. Yes, we do suppose that you have come to bring Peace upon the earth. But Jesus counters that notion very quickly. Just in his response to his own question there in verse 51, he says, I tell you, no. No. But division. Verse 51, it's pretty easy to understand what that means, isn't it? From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. What's the point of division here? The point of division is your understanding and your, in, your interpretation and your response to Jesus Christ. And so there will be those who will respond to Jesus as he has revealed himself to them face to face, to us through the scriptures. And there will be those who will respond to Jesus as he revealed to himself affirmatively. They will embrace his message. They will embrace him as God. They will embrace him as God incarnate come to live among men. They believe him as such. And so they embrace him. But at the same time, within the context of even a household, there are those who will reject that message. They reject Jesus as the Christ. They reject Jesus as God. And so there's division. So we can say that certainly Jesus came in some sense to bring peace. And he does, doesn't he? He brings peace on some fronts. Primarily the fronts which he brings peace are peace between God and men of those who believe in him. Those who were once the enemies of God are reconciled, brought to terms of peace. He does bring peace on that front. But when he brings peace on that front, he brings division among others. Because men are not united in what they believe of Christ. And there's division that will stand even within the context of the home. We've seen that. Some of you have tasted that. You've experienced that. The pain of that. That there are some within your families that reject Christ as the Messiah. They reject Him as He has been revealed. And so Jesus says, I come to bring division. And my, the division I am bringing, that my presence, my, my message, my existence and embracing me will divide the closest of relationships, even within families. And it will. Because there will be some who will embrace it. Some who will reject it. 
He speaks of division in verse, in verse 51, but also note he speaks in verse 50. And I'm going here backwards because I think the reason I'm going back is because we're, we're beginning with what's the most clear, backing up to what's the least clear. But in verse 50, he speaks of this baptism. Verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And commentators are of, are consistent on this, that what he's referring, I think we would easily see it, that what he's speaking of here is the baptism of the sufferings of his passions, that which he is about to endure, that of being arrested, that of being beaten, that of being crucified, that of being killed at the hands of of men. So he's speaking of his the baptism of suffering that he will endure, even though he is the Messiah, the Messiah who is prophesied throughout the Old Testament to come and to bring peace, the Messiah who is to come and to establish his kingdom. He he wants his disciples to understand, and likewise for us, as we see the certainly see the picture more clearly, that his kingdom is not secured by arms and by swords, but his kingdom is secured by a death and by a resurrection. His kingdom is secured by his substitutionary death to pay for the penalties of his people. That's the king that we serve. He's paid for your crimes. He has paid for my crimes, my offenses against none other than him. That we might be reconciled to him. So he says in verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Almost a sense of wanting to be done with it. How distressed I am as he looks forward to to that, that suffering that he's going to endure. How distressed I am until it is accomplished. His suffering and his death, it's a necessary event. Jesus didn't become a victim to the circumstances of the world in which he lived. He wasn't a philosophical leader and teacher way ahead of his times. He was God who came to his own people and his own people received him not. They rejected him. And it was a necessary event to take place and he anticipates its passing Then we come to verse 49. As Jesus introduces this section, he comes to this language. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, what does that mean? And to be honest with you, this is not a verse where commentators come to a consensus. The context seems to indicate that it's something that is rather unexpected and surprising to the disciples. In other words, you don't ex- they're not expecting that Jesus is coming to cast fire. And so he is using this language to somewhat jolt them. I want you to understand I've come to cast fire upon the earth. And with the thought that in response to this, I was something like, what? What? What do you mean that you've come to cast fire Upon the earth. And again, there is much disagreement as to what this verse actually means. I want you to note, first of all, the parallels between 49 and 50, just in the way that, that they're written, the way they're spoken. Even in the English, I know it's translated from the Greek, but even the, I'm using the NASB. But even the NASB keeps something of the, of, the, of the parallelism between these two verses. I've come to cast fire upon the earth, verse 49. Verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo. 
Back to 49. How I wish you were already kindled. Back to 50. How distressed I am until it is accomplished. So there are some people who say that he's in fact here speaking about the same thing. And I think we can say safely that there is a reference here in verse 49 to, to what's going to transpire once he has died and been risen. That he's making reference to something that even hasn't taken place. All right, I've come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. In other words, it's not kindled yet, but it's about to be. And it has something to do with his passion, with his crucifixion, and with his resurrection. Now, some have looked at this, and they interpret this casting of fire as referring to the fire as the judgment of God. And there's certainly biblical reason to rightly think about fire, because there are many places in the Old Testament that fire is clearly speaking about God's judgment. I'll just reference these. If you want to jot these down, we're not going to turn there. Isaiah 66, 15. Joel chapter 2, verse 30. Amos chapter 1, verse 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 13. I'll repeat those one more time if you happen to be writing them down. Isaiah 66, 15. Joel chapter 2, verse 30. Amos chapter 1, verse 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 13. So it would not be unusual for Jesus to use the terminology of fire in speaking in some sense of the judgment of God being, coming as a fire. Others have looked at it and said, no, there's not really speaking here of God's judgment. What he's speaking of here is the fire is referencing to the persecution and the afflictions and the dissensions that accompany the gospel's introduction. In other words, that that fire is used as affliction and persecution. And we have biblical warrant for that. Psalm 66, verse 12. And Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. Speaking of places where it's speaking more of, of affliction and persecution. Now, which is it? I don't know, I can't be dogmatic here, I'm not going to be, which is why I didn't thrust that upon us as a primary point of our, for our case here. However, I think in light of the context here, in light of the context where he is speaking of the division that comes here in verses 52 and verse 53, there has to be some referencing here to, to the afflictions and to the persecutions that come upon the people of God because they embrace Jesus as the Christ. And whichever of these positions one may hold, whether they see it as the judgment of God or whether they see it as the persecutions, the afflictions of the unrighteous toward the righteous, toward those who are not in Christ, upon those who are in Christ, there is at least this common theme. There, We would recognize that there is... There is an opposition. There's an opposition of two opposing parties here. It's either God and men and God's judgment against sinful men. Or it's an opposition between the unrighteous and the righteous. So whichever way you interpret it, you've got one side as opposed to another side. So there is a sense that we can, we can come away with this. There is a spirit of animosity. There's a spirit of animosity between these two sides, whether it's Jesus bringing the fire of judgment or identifying with Jesus and his gospel 
results in the fires of persecution. The point being, there's division. There is division. And it certainly fits within the context of what Jesus is saying. I'm inclined to see it, seeing it in more in terms, not the judgments of God per se, but in, in terms of the afflictions and the persecutions upon the people of God as he speaks of this casting fire upon the earth. But hence, we come to this. His incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus, his first coming, is not to be misread as here is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Now, we understand from the scriptures, from other places, that those are true of him. That we understand that Jesus ministered with a spirit of gentleness to those who suffered. And he walked with the spirit of meekness. He identified himself as meek and lowly of heart. But that's not the full spectrum of who Jesus is. And if that's all someone understands and they see of Jesus in his first coming, then they have misread the incarnation by his coming. By his coming, there's more here than a life of a, of a moral example. There's more here than a life that is a message of gentleness and kindness. There is a redemptive work taking place. That's the purpose of his coming. He came to live, yes, but he also came to die and to, lie and to rise again. And when by doing so, the lines of division between the people of God and those who continue as the enemies of God are clearly drawn once and for all. He came to redeem a people and those who are redeemed are the people of God and those who are reject are the enemies of God. There's enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So I don't count myself as an enemy of God. Well, you don't have to. He's already told you. You are. If you're not a child of God, having embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, sent here to pay for penalty for your sins, you are today an enemy of God. That's all the Scripture tells us. And all of us here, every one of us here, at one time, was an enemy of God. So, this prince of peace is not to be perceived as this sentimental peace at any price, nice to anyone. Everyone loves him, moral leader. I mean, some people's concept of Jesus Christ is something along the ideas of part of Barney the Purple Dinosaur. I love you, you love me, we're one big happy family. And that's not the Christ of the Scriptures. That's not the Christ of the Scriptures. He comes to bring division. He came into this world, his own creation, a world that held only contempt for him. Listen, the Jews of his day were not unique. Had he come any other place, it would have been the same. The response would have been the same. We hate our creator. We'll be done with him. So in the world, it's rejection of him, it's rejection of his work, his reject the rejection of his gospel most clearly demonstrated in the events of his passion and that suffering. And it continues to be demonstrated even to this day. As we pray for the persecuted church every week, 
You see it very clearly. The body of Christ still being persecuted. Why? Because the world still hates its God. That's why. The heart of man is opposed to God. So, what's our response? First of all, we must counter the world's attempt to recast the purpose and the effect of Christ coming. He did not come to bring world peace by philosophical wisdom and then fall victim to a misunderstanding society because they were just, they couldn't keep up with him. He's ahead of his times. That's not the problem. The problem here is the heart of man. And when God came, man hated him. And it became very clear because man hates God. And he came as a great dividing line, graciously purchasing a people for himself, but at the same time, sealing the eternal destruction of those who oppose him. There has been provision made for all who will come, all who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will embrace him as the substitute for their sin, having died in their place because and having received upon himself what they deserve, the very wrath of God. There is a provision made for men to come to God through Christ and Christ alone. And for those who reject Him, listen, the day is sealed. It's sealed. You seal your own destruction. But we'll not have Christ recast. We'll not have Him reinvented to fit the, the modern contemporary mind. Christ has been revealed to us. It's an adequate picture. It's an accurate picture. And it's served the church well for 2,000 years. We're not here to change it today. And there are still people, generation after generation after generation, who, by the grace of God, who see that picture of Christ, who see that work of Christ, they embrace Him and they love Him. He is the joy of their hearts. He is the joy of our hearts. Is He not? And so that message... That message is still an offense. And we just better, we have to live with that. The message of the gospel that men are sinful, that men are opposed to God, that men are in need of a substitute in order to have any hope of being reconciled to God for their sin, it's offensive. Unless God in His grace opens your eyes to see. So when we proclaim that message, don't expect the world to pat you on the back and say, oh, how much I respect you and appreciate your message. If anything, you might get slapped in the face. While you're so pomp and you're so holier than thou, you're such an elitist. It's not my message. It's the message of God. It's the message of Christ. And it's not a message that I would have embraced either, apart from the grace of God. Nor would any of you. But that message will not be changed. We will not reduce Christ in His first coming to some moral example for us to follow. He came to live, and He came to die, and He came to rise for the sake of His people. And for the glory of God. Secondly, we see another misunderstanding, potential misunderstanding, is mistaking the interpretation altogether. Mistaking the interpretation. In other words, 
How is Jesus' first coming to be interpreted? And in verse 54, Jesus turns and says, He was also saying here to the multitudes. So there's, there's a reference here, an indication here from the mind of, of Luke that where it begins here is, is a broader circle than just to Peter and to the disciples. There's a multitude that's gathered there. And so he begins to speak to this multitude. And the words that he speaks, they come, they come out in this sharp rebuke. And he rebukes them for their ignorance in interpreting his coming. Notice here in verse 54. When you see a cloud rise in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. Rather than being impressed by their great skills to interpret the weather, which we could use some of those in our modern day, could we not? Very strong words here, verse 56, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky? Why do you not analyze this present time? Be careful to analyze the weather pointers. You can see a cloud in the west, or you can see, feel the wind from the south, and you analyze, and you rightly predict, and more than likely, you plan, and you act accordingly. If you know the weather is going to do certain things, does it not, in certain cases, dictate your plans of action? You do this. But there's an utter failure to analyze the events that are transpiring in their day right before their very eyes. And in particular, in particular, the magnitude of the presence of Jesus Christ right there with them. They're missing it. They're missing it all together. It's a failure to analyze and to rightly interpret the significance of the message of John the Baptist when he came and those things which John did in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures as one who comes to prepare the way. There's a fulfillment there as important as Christ's coming, which we, way back there in Luke chapter 1 or 2, we spoke of that was in one sense, prophetically speaking, it was just as important that John the Baptist come as it was that Jesus come because the Scriptures said there'll be one to come before him. So prophetically speaking, we understand his work was not the same, but prophetically speaking, it was just as important that John the Baptist come as Jesus come. And they failed to, to analyze and to rightly interpret that. They failed to analyze the, the ministry of Jesus, those things which they had seen him doing. They had heard his words. They had seen this miraculous deeds. Those were attesting signs that Jesus is not here as an ordinary man. He's here doing something much greater than mere men can do. The authority with which he would speak. And even to raise people from the dead. It's a significance so clear. And speaking especially in the context of the Israelite people. If there was ever anyone who should have known... What the Messiah would be like when he, when he comes. It was those people that had the Old Testament scriptures at their disposal. Which told them this is what would transpire. And they were mistaken in their interpretation. They just failed to get it at all. They considered Jesus 
perhaps interesting. He is an interesting person to have on the scene in these days. We're not doing much. Hey, let's go hear Jesus today. See what he's got to say. A person who is even somewhat amazing at times. He's doing some pretty impressive things. We've heard about raising the dead. We've heard about him walking on the water. We've heard about him casting out demons. But failed to interpret him being there as God himself. And as one to whom they should commit their life. To bow their knee before him. They missed it. And it was a mistake for them. And it is today. For those who still miss it. That was a mistake of eternal consequences. See, Jesus was considered. Jesus was respected by many. Hated by some. But mistakenly interpreted as relatively insignificant. That's what it amounts to. It's relatively insignificant what I believe about Jesus, what I do with Jesus, whether I believe He's God or not. And so we have to proclaim Jesus as God, the God of creation. He is not one among many religious influences. That's why it becomes alarming, incidentally, as we considered, mentioned last Sunday, but uh, last the week prior, that there was the, the Hindu that was permitted to have the opening prayer in the Senate. I mean, to some degree, you expect that in our pluralistic society. I understand that. But what, we're, what we need to understand is that it's an affront to the God of creation to put Hinduism on the same level of Christianity. Because Christianity is about Christ, who is God. And you're free to believe what you will in this country. Yes, you are. Even into the damnation of your own soul, you're free to believe that. But understand that. We'll let you do it. (laughs) But it's not the same. And we cannot water down... We cannot fall into the trap of syncretism, of blending Christianity with six other religious beliefs. It just doesn't happen. It stands one alone, one unique. Christ who is God himself. Christ who came to redeem sinners through a substitutionary death. And by many, he has interpreted it as nothing more than a mere flash in the pan. Here today, gone tomorrow. And what a disaster. And the people of Jesus there, they missed it. They interpreted Jesus poorly. Much more poorly than they could predict the weather by looking at the clouds. Or feeling the wind. They interpreted Jesus as... No big deal. And finally, we consider a third potential hazard, and that is missing the implications. Missing the implication of Christ in his first coming. In other words, how should we respond? 
How should we respond? And we see here in verses 58 through 59. And incidentally, mistaking the interpretation. If you interpret Jesus as no big deal. If you interpret Jesus as, oh, hey, he was a big deal. He's an important historical figure, but he's not God. If you interpret Jesus as anything less than he has revealed himself to us through the scriptures, you will inevitably miss the implications. Your, the response to which you should come. And the implication here is given to us in a parallel that Jesus gives. He gives us a, a story in verse, well, it's not really a story, it's really counsel. While you're going with your op- opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the constable and the constable throw you into prison. I say to you, you shall not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Is he giving her advice But if you're about to go to court and somebody's about to throw the book at you? I think the context compels to say, no, there's more here. The context of what Jesus is speaking of here, there's more behind this illustration. And the illustration is intended to take them to a higher level, but think merely in human terms. If you're going to court and the inference is you're the guilty party, you're being taken to the court, you're being drugged there, here's the solution that you would think this is smart. Let's settle this thing before we get there. Makes sense. I mean, after all, you get to a judge who doesn't know you, he may like the other guy, or whatever the case may be, deal with it before you get to the judge. Lest you get into there and you receive the sentence against you because you are guilty. And then there is no relief from the sentence of judgment. What is he pointing us to? I think what he's pointing us to is that men are called and men are wise who settle their differences before they stand before God. That's what he's calling us to. It's a call here through this picture that he gives of preparing to meet a judge on a human level is you need to prepare to meet your judge on a spiritual, eternal level. To deal with it now. To settle out of court. Because when you stand before God, either in death or in Christ's return, when you stand before God then, there is no longer a repentance unto salvation. There is no longer a faith in the salvation. There is merely the sentence of death and guilt pronounced against you. And the words that he uses in verse 51 in human terms, you'll not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. How long is that? That's eternity. Because you're not paying off debts in hell. You're not paying off. You're simply receiving the punishment which you deserve for the crimes you've already committed. There's no payment of debt here. So the point that Jesus is making here is that make sure you rightly understand the significance of my coming. How is it that you should respond to the first coming of of Christ? It is to repent from your sin, to turn from your sin, to recognize your need of Christ, and to believe in Him, to embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. That's the implication. Deal with it now while you have opportunity. This is your day of opportunity. Because when you stand before Him, the day... Of opportunity is lost. It's gone.
There is but one road to reconciliation with God. Repentance and faith. Repentance of sin, faith in Jesus Christ as he has been revealed to us in the scriptures. So I don't see that. I don't believe that. I don't believe Jesus is what the scripture says or what people say the scripture says. I don't believe that. Then pray for the mercy of God that he would open your eyes to see. Because that's the only reason I see. That's the only reason anyone sees. That God in his mercy chose to open the eyes of a blind fool named Randy McReynolds. And I saw. This isn't a message that appeals to your, just your reason and the natural man. It is a message that the Spirit of God gives you grace to embrace. Or you'll walk away countless times. So the true message of Christ's coming is this. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. Be reconciled in the way that He has ordained. The only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And it's either true or He's a liar and it's not worth giving any thought to. To see our sinful condition that has separated us from God. To plead for the mercy of God. Repenting of our sin and to embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the implication of His first coming. And you're not ready for His return if you don't get that. You're not ready to stand before God, to stand before Christ who will be your judge if you've not bowed the knee before Him here and now. So, to get ready for that second coming, to be ready, make sure you understand why He's come in the first place. He is the dividing point of humanity. There are basically two groups of people in the world. Those who believe Christ and those who reject Him. Those who are the children of God, those who have been brought to the family of God by the grace of God, not by any merits or goodness of their own. And those who still stand as the enemies of God, still stand in their sin. That's it. The great divisions of humanity are not race. They're not national origin. They're not economic. They are spiritual. They are in Christ or they're outside Christ. That's it. He is the dividing point of mankind. And he is to be interpreted as God's intervention on behalf of men. He's not a mere flash in the pan. He's not a man who lived here 2,000 years ago giving some type of moral example for a few handful of people. And some got it and some didn't. No, he came to pay for the sins of his people, to die for them, that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was part of his plan before the foundations of the world. He was not a victim. Things did not get out of control. He was in charge. I laid down my life. No one can take it from me. That's what he said. And his coming carries the implications that men must therefore repent and believe. Repent and believe. No other way. So rightly understanding Christ in his first coming is crucial. It's a crucial event, and I unhesitantly, unhesitantly say it's the most crucial event 
that's taken place in human history up to this point. And even when he returns, it will still be the most crucial event in redemptive history. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us that we have not marveled at these truths more than we do. That somehow that something as, as great a truth as God redeeming his people can be old news. Lord, forgive us that we have not been the fragrance of life or death. Because we have not truly embraced the implications of these things as we ought as the people of God. Oh, Lord, what it would mean if we truly believe these things as we ought to. We thank you that Christ has come. We thank you that you have been satisfied by his redemptive work and that because of Christ's death, that there will be those from every nation and tongue and tribe who will stand before the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb for all of eternity. Lord, what a joy to be in that number. Lord, would you help us? Lord, help us to be faithful in the days that we're here in proclaiming Christ for who he is. And knowing that that it is a message that you will send forth and that you will call some unto yourself. And that we'll not abandon the power of the gospel. Knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, to proclaim that message, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a treasure you've granted to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.